So turn with me, please, if you can, to Romans chapter 11. So we're going to have two more goes at Romans chapter 11. And then we'll take a break, do something else. Come back to chapter 12 later in the year, maybe. Um, or maybe next year, who knows. <laughs> but let's, uh, let's read from verse uh, 25 down to 32. And Paul is speaking to the Jews, seems to be mainly to the Gentiles, verse 13. Um, But he's speaking about the issue of Jews and Gentiles. And he says, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloveds for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they, may also, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your words, again, it's a tricky passage, and uh, we pray you'd help us to have a better understanding of it by the end of this that you would enable us to to wrestle with what it says and for our good and for your glory in Jesus name Amen So we've been following Paul quite closely in the last few weeks Um, and in particular we've been wrestling with this discussion that Paul's been having about his kinsmen his fellow Jews or ethnic Israel if you like and uh, he's, trying to, he's trying to lay out where, where do the Jews fit in the plan of salvation. Um, and on the ground, as it were, from Paul's perspective, uh, on the whole, the Jews have rejected the message of Jesus Christ um, and the salvation that's in him. On, whereas on the other hand, the Gentiles seem to be coming to faith in Christ. Uh, so Paul is a, a missionary to the Gentiles. He goes to, often to the synagogue when he goes to a new place. If there is a synagogue, that's the first place he'll go. But you often find in the book of Acts that he eventually has to go somewhere else. And uh, he ends up uh, going to the Gentiles. And many Gentiles get converted. Uh, and no doubt this is, although Paul has never been to Rome uh, yet, um, he this is what's ha- also happened in, amongst the Romans. Um, and it's quite likely that though the church may well have been started by uh, Romans uh, who were present at Pentecost, and you can see that in, in Acts chapter 2, that there were some Jews from Rome present amongst many other places, um, that probably most of the converts in the Roman church are now Gentiles. And it may seem like um, that this is a, something of a puzzle, given that the Jews have been so, so blessed in the past uh, 
Um, After all, doesn't he say in chapter 9, verse 4, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. Uh, To them belong the the patriarchs and so on. Um, Well, Paul has spent nearly three chapters uh, talking about this, um, dealing with this question. And it's important to bear in mind why he's, he's doing that. Um, there's been a lot, um, and there's been an awful lot written on this topic. Uh, a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, a lot of disagreement about what Paul is, is talking about and what it means. And it would be, be easy for us to get lost in all the, uh, all the discussion of the ins and outs of the matter and forget the heart of Paul in the midst of all of this. Uh, what is it that's really driving Paul here, in his, where's his heart resting? And, uh, and, and this section 9 to 11, chapters 9 to 11, is bookended by two very emotional, emotional laden, emotion laden uh, sets of statements. Um, in the first passage is chapter 9 in verses 2 and 3. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And there we see the depth of his desire uh, to see his fellow Jews saved. And indeed, that's what he says in chapter 10. Brothers, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And so Paul is speaking as, a, as, an, uh, as an apostle and an evangelist whose heart breaks when he sees those closest to him unsaved. That's such a, a challenge to us. You know, often we read Paul and we think he's just a theologian, but see his heart here about the unsaved, especially those who are close to us, our family members, our cousins, our close members, family members. Paul's heart here is that they may be saved. And it's his evangelistic heart that's uh, driving the discussion, I think, here through 9 to 11. And he argues it through to what is an, uh, an amazing statement in verse, uh, verse 26. Uh, which we'll come back to in detail. And he says, and in this way, this way, all Israel will be saved. And please open the question, what, what does he mean? <laughs> and we'll come to that in a moment. Um, but it's, <clears throat> but it's, af- it's, it's after this that's in some further discussion about how the planet is working out uh, from scripture and in other considerations in verses 26 through to 32 that leads to the climactic uh, emotional laden doxology at the end of the chapter. So this is the the other bookend, if you like. And so you look at uh, 11 verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Everything is in the hands of this infinitely wise, wonderful God. And this is what he's taken up with at the end. The glory of God. And we'll come to that next week. But 
Anyway, to, to really understand the point of this section, we need to understand, therefore, that Paul is writing as an evangelist who is thinking about the salvation of his fellow Jews and showing that for all the signs to the contrary, God is not finished with his people at all, but rather he is bringing this, this whole work wonderfully and his wonderfully wise plan of salvation to a glorious conclusion. And at the end, he cannot help but sing about it. And we'll look at that next time. In this section, from 25 to 32, I want to just deal with three questions. Um, so, first of all, when Paul speaks about the whole Jew-Gentile question, uh, he speaks about it as a mystery. So the qu- first question is, what is the mystery? And then the second question is, what does Scripture say about this mystery? And we're going to look at how he quotes from the Old Testament. And then thirdly, what are the implications of this in the remaining verses 28 through to 32? So what's the mystery that he speaks of? Uh, He mentions that in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. There's a mystery about the Jews and the Gentiles. There's quite a bit we don't understand uh, is, is the kind of implication of the word uh, mystery. And Paul is very keen that they understand that mystery, get, get a better understanding of that mystery. The risk is that if they don't get a better understanding of it, the Gentiles in the congregation, um, when they look around and they see that the church is mostly made up of Gentiles, and most of the Jews have rejected Christ, then they draw the conclusion that the gospel of Jesus Christ is only for the Gentiles. And maybe they'll get a little bit arrogant. And Paul has addressed that in verses 18 and 20, of the arrogance, the potential arrogance of the uh, the Gentiles. And so he starts off by saying, lest you be wise in your own conceits. Don't get so conceited about your position. So what does Paul mean by mystery? Now, often when we use the word mystery, we think about some unsolved problem, a, a puzzle, or a conundrum that doesn't have, where a solution has not presented itself to us yet. And as soon as it's solved, you know, it's no longer a mystery. But that's not quite how Paul thinks about min, uh, mysteries, especially this one. Uh, Paul uses the, the word mystery quite a few times. Um, And actually, he's going to use it again at the end of the the letter. If you look ahead to chapter 16, verses 25 and 26, and he gives this kind of uh, benediction at the end. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret from long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. And so on, he goes. This mystery that's now been revealed and is now being proclaimed to the world. And the mystery, of course, is connected with Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ has now been revealed. And so, in a sense, the mystery has come to the fore. The the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament. uh, In a sense, hidden in plain sight, because it's all there. You just need to see it with the eyes of faith. Christ is in the Old Testament. And he's spoken of in the Old Testament. But now Christ has come. And the mystery is revealed. 
And now this Christ is proclaimed to the nations. One aspect of the mystery of Christ is this whole question of the different responses of the Jews and Gentiles to that same gospel. You see, up to the coming of Christ, the promises, the prophecies, the sacrificial symbols which pointed to Christ were all locked up in Israel. And the Gentiles on the whole didn't know about it. There are some exceptions, of course. Remember Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 was a Gentile. uh, Or Ruth was a Moabitess, but she took God as her God and followed Naomi back to, to Bethlehem and, be, and uh, was a believer in this covenant-making God. But now, as, as it were, with the coming of Christ, the gospel is broken out into the world and the situation is reversed. The, the Gentiles are receiving the gospel and the Jews are re- rejecting it. Now, neither of those scenarios in the Old Testament, locked up in Israel, or in the New Testament, where it's mostly Gentiles that are coming to faith, Neither of those scenarios could ever be the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham. Uh, because the promise to God would, uh, promise to Abraham was that the, his seed would be a blessing to the nations, that God would bless the nations, not just his own people. And any fulfillment of that promise given to Abraham would involve the blessing being shared amongst both Jews and Gentiles. So you Gentiles, don't be so arrogant. Don't be so uppity and proud of your response to the gospel. God is not finished yet. And this is what Paul has already been explaining earlier in the chapter and now summarizes in verse 25. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's been a partial hardening of Israel to the gospel. Not completely, because Paul himself has become a Christian, and uh, other Jews have received the gospel. But on the whole, there's a a partial hardening of the, the people of Israel. And as a result of this rejection... The gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, to, I think, mostly us. You know. uh, we gospels come to Solihull because, partly because the Jews rejected the gospel and has come to us. But Paul is, he is anticipating a, a further phase. And we've looked at this already. He expects that in time there will be such jealousy of his fellow Jews that many of them will be drawn into to the faith. And you might be able to see how that happens. Um, the Jews see these Gentiles looking at the promises which they felt belonged to them. And it may be out of jealousy that they begin to look at them again. And maybe look at them in a new way. And by the grace of God they see Jesus Christ in those very same scriptures that they've had since their birth. And they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And through jealousy, they're driven to to come to Christ and put their trust in him. Paul seems to suggest here that there are, in fact, these distinct phases. A hardening of Israel 
It will continue until a particular time. And until that happens, Israel will always be a hard people to reach with the gospel. And it's at this point that Paul says, and in this way, verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's the contentious verse. All Israel will be saved. And I want you to notice a couple of things that are really important about this, this verse. And we need to pay attention. This is where, one of these cases where we need to pay attention to details. Uh, first of all, verse 26 is often read as though it follows in time after what he describes in verse 25. So some people read the plan of salvation like this. Phase 1, a partial hardening of Israel. Though some will be saved, but not as many as you might expect. Phase 2, the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Gentiles start becoming Christians and coming in, as they did under Paul. And then they say, phase 3, then hardened Israel shall be saved. There will be a mass incoming of Jews into the kingdom. Um, and, and, and it's important to note Paul I think in verse 25 is talking about ethnic categories here he's talking about Jewish people and non-Jewish people here um, and so you get many Christians who look forward to a great day in the future where, where there will be a mass conversion of the Jews and not a few of them have been Presbyterians in the past Scots Presbyterians, <laughs> for that matter. However, there's a slight problem with that, and let me, let me just point that out to you. Is Paul in verse 26 talking about the next phase of redemptive history after the Jews have come in, after the, the Gentiles have come in, the fullness of Gentiles have come in? Is he really talking about a future mass conversion of the Jews? Because, you see, sometimes people read it as though Paul has said in verse 26, and then all Israel shall be saved. Isn't that how people often read it? Israel's going to be hardened. Then the Gentiles are going to come come in until the fullness of Gentiles comes. And then all Israel shall be saved. As though there's some mass conversion in the future. Well, it doesn't say that. (laughs) It doesn't say, it's not a time the preposition there is not a time but a, a temporal marker if you like um, it's not actually what Paul wrote Paul's not saying and then that all Israel will be saved he is saying in this way all Israel will be saved actually verse 26 is a summary statement of what he's just said in verse 25 And it's here I want to make a a second point about verse 26. I believe what Paul is doing here in verse 26 is talking about Israel. This is verse 26 now. He is talking about Israel as a body that includes all the grafted in Gentiles that he's talked about earlier in the chapter. Remember the olive tree picture. 
In other words, he has moved from talking about an ethnic group in verse 25 to a new grouping of saved people made up of Jews and Gentiles in verse 26. Now that's not new. He's, he's been playing with this idea of Israel from, from chapter 9. What does he say in chapter 9? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There's two Israels in verse, chapter 9, verse 6. And that's what I think he's doing here. So when he mentions all Israel, in, that, in, in, in this way all Israel will be saved, he is talking about the Israel of God. That's what he calls it in Galatians 6, 16, that we read this morning. The Israel of God, and applied it to the church of Jews and Gentiles. So it's my own conviction that Paul is teaching his readers that the idea of Israel, the biblical idea of Israel, is actually a far, is far greater than simply an ethnic category. Rather, the relevant category is the sum total of saved people drawn from amongst Jews and Gentiles. Now, beyond that, I'm not sure we can say uh, much more. Looking into the future is, is always difficult when you can't see the fulfillment. It's rather like getting the directions to somewhere, and you don't know it very well, and it doesn't make very much sense until you get there, and then you realize, oh yeah, it made sense. <laughs> it's kind of like that, I think, with Paul's uh, looking into the future here. So that's why I think the mystery of uh, the salvation of Israel is, is here. Let's move on now to the second thing. What does Scripture actually say about this? And he he backs what it, what he says up what he says in verse twenty six uh, with a quotation. It's, it's a composite quotation in verses twenty six and twenty seven. Uh, Paul is always good at looking at the Scripture. Now, what does Scripture say? Romans four three. What does the Scripture say? And here he turns to two places. And it's a, as I said, it's a composite quote. Uh, once again, he turns to Isaiah, and he quotes from Isaiah 59, 20, and 21. And then the last line, uh, when I take away their sins, it could be from Isaiah 27, verse 9, or the passage we read this morning in Jeremiah 31, 34. I will take away all their sins. I will forgive all their sins. What Paul is doing here is he's He's finding scriptural evidence for the argument that he is making that there will at some point be a restoration of Israel in a way that is significantly different to what Paul and the church was then experiencing. It speaks of a deliverer coming to Zion, coming to Jerusalem. It speaks of changed life. It speaks of moving from ungodliness to godliness. In other words, the hard hearts that, that people have once had uh, being made soft towards God, whether Jew or Gentile. It speaks of the sealing of the covenant be- benefits to those of Jacob, insisting on the forgiveness of their sins. And we looked at all of this this morning under the new covenant. Now, if you look closely at that quotation... And you can do this when you get home. You can see that 
then actually Paul changes it slightly. Sometimes he does that. He takes an Old Testament passage that's looking forward and sometimes he changes it and makes it look backwards. Um, in Isaiah 59 verse 20, the deliverer comes to Zion. But here Paul says that the deliverer comes from Zion. Actually, the Hebrew allows for both. But Paul emphasizes the exit from Zion because of the point he, he is at in redemptive history. That actually the deliverer, deliverer has already come. Jesus has already come. He has gone to Jerusalem. Remember, he was in the temp- went to the temple, overturned the tables with the money changers, went and said, this is my father's house and it's to be a house of prayer. But in a more complete sense, he came and became, became the sacrificial offering for sin. And he comes as the mediator of a new covenant. And now, in Paul's time, Jesus Christ, through the power of his Spirit, sent from heaven, using the agency of apostles and the church, is going out into the world as the gospel is preached. Jesus Christ is going out into the world through the agency, through the ministry of the Spirit and the, and the agency of the apostles as they preach the gospel. Christ is going out from Zion into the world to gather people in. And at the appropriate point, the fullness of the Gentiles, when they have come in, in that way all Israel will be saved. What are the implications for the the mystery then as we come to a close? Verses 28 through to 32. Two quick things. And there's plenty I could say about this passage. We don't have time to, to go into all of it. Firstly to say that in verse 29 all those gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's a wonderful statement for any Christian, isn't it? If God has said something, then he's not going to take it back. When God calls you, when Jesus calls you in the gospel, and when you hear it, and when you believe it with all your heart, and you receive the gift of salvation, that free justification, that free adoption, that free glorification. He is not going to pull them back from you and say, no, 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 you failed. God's call is irrevocable. He cannot revoke his call to you. He does not take his gifts back from you like a bad Santa Claus. (laughs) That woke you up. That's a wonderful assurance for anybody who's a Christian. When you have salvation, he's not going to take it away from you. But I think Paul here is thinking about something, something slightly different. He's here primarily thinking historically and the place of Israel in the history of redemption. The ancient people of Israel were called out of slavery, given the promises of the covenant, and, are, and therefore are a special people in history. 
And so is the sign of their present hard-heartedness to the gospel a sign that God has revoked his call to Israel, this ethnic group? Has he withdrawn his gifts from them as a people? And Paul says, the answer is no. We're thinking historically here. They may be his, currently his enemies, as it says in verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But they are enemies for a reason, so that the Gentiles can be brought in. Yet they are also beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And that's a reference to the great figures of history, of Israelite history. And Paul expects that, there will, that some of them will be converted and will be part of this Israel of God. That's one quick thing. The second thing I want to just mention as we finish is to notice the common way of salvation, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Because it really doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. The pattern for this is in verses 30 and 31. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, he's talking to the Gentiles, because of their disobedience, so now too, so they too now have been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they, may also, they also may now receive mercy. Key thing is, that both Jews and Gentiles have shown disobedience to the God who has made them. And who, and this is true for everyone, isn't it? Who, who in this room can say, I've always been obedient. I'm a good person. You've been disobedient. So have I. We all have. And yet, in that disobedience, there came a day when you heard the call of God upon your life. You heard the Lord Jesus say, come unto me and rest, as the hymn goes. And there came that free offer of the gospel, the good news of salvation and the deliverance from the penalty and the power and ultimately the pollution of our sin. Well, this is true of peoples too. It was true of the Gentiles at one time outside of the covenant blessings and given over to ungodliness but now in Paul's time the Gentiles are being grafted in and hearing about Jesus Christ and believing in him and receiving mercy and in the end salvation is the same for all whether Jew or Gentile that you are you begin as a disobedient sinner but you hear the call of God. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. And repent of all your sins. And discover that your sins are all forgiven. And you enter into the covenant blessings of God. Because of course all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. All need a righteousness that comes from God in Jesus Christ. Through the blood that he has shed on the cross. Friends, this is a wonderful story. 
the story of God's redemption, not just personally, but in history. And it's centered around Jesus Christ. And that message is spreading to every nation under the sun as the gospel is proclaimed. And Jesus Christ is gathering to the, uh, his people into the fullness of the Gentiles. And he will gather the fullness of all Israel in doing that. And it's this thought that leads us into Paul's next verse, which we'll begin to look at next time. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul is not at all despondent. He feels for them, but he's not despondent about the plan of God. He may have anguish in his soul and deep sorrow at their hardness, but he is sustained by this great vision of the purposes of God in history. And Paul has this missionary heart where he believes God's word and believes that God is going to bring it to completion. So I wonder today, as we finish, do you have that vision for God's work? Are you looking around, or maybe you're looking around, and you look at your classmates and you look at your colleagues at work or your neighbors and you think, they're just all so hardened to the gospel. And people are not becoming Christians. When was the last time we had somebody come to a living faith in Christ in this church? I'm slightly embarrassed to say this, but it's actually been a few years. There's so much godlessness in this world. Are we going to get despondent? Are we going to say it's not working? Many churches will go off down a track of trying to make things work. Don't get despondent. Don't think that it's all a waste of time. God has everything under control. Jesus said, I will build my church. And God has said, Hebrews, uh, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, uh, the confidence that Paul has, that though his heart breaks for his fellow kinsmen, yet he has absolute confidence in the purposes of God. We pray we too would share in that confidence and pray for it and seek your face on these matters. So bless us, we pray. Encourage us and lift up our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.